0: Part 7 of Batwing by Sax Romer, read by Mark Nelson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Batwing, Chapter 19 Complications. I am afraid of this man Aylesbury, said Paul Harley. We sat in the deserted dining room. I had contributed my account of the evening's happenings, Dr. Rolston had made his report, and Inspector Aylesbury was now examining the servants in the library. Harley and I had obtained his official permission to withdraw, and the physician was visiting Madame de Stemmer, who lay in a state of utter prostration. What do you mean, Harley?" I mean that he will presently make some tragic blunder. Good God, Knox! to think that this man had sought my aid! and that I stood by idly, whilst he walked out to his death, I shall never forgive myself." He banged the table with his fist. "'Even now that these unknown fiends have achieved their object, I am helpless, helpless. There was not a wisp of smoke to guide me, Knox, and one man cannot search a county.' I sighed wearily. "'Do you know, Harley?' I said. "'I am thinking of a verse of Kipling's.' "'I know,' he interrupted, almost savagely. A Snyder squibbed in the jungle, somebody laughed and fled. Oh, I know, Knox, I heard that damnable laughter, too. My God! I whispered, who was it, what was it, where did it come from?" As well as ask where the shot came from, Knox. Out amongst all those trees, with a house that might have been built for a sounding-board, who could presume to say where either came from? One thing we know, that the shot came from the South." He leaned upon a corner of the table, staring at me intently. "'From the South?' I echoed. Harley glanced in the direction of the open door. "'Presently,' he said, "'we shall have to tell Aylesbury everything that we know. After all, he represents the law, but unless we can get Inspector Wessex down from Scotland Yard, I foresee a miscarriage of justice.' Colonel Menendez lay on his face and the line made by his recumbent body pointed almost directly toward—I nodded, watching him. I know, Harley—toward the guest-house. Paul Harley inclined his head grimly. The first light which we saw, he continued, was in a window of the guest-house. It may have no significance. Awakened by the sound of a rifle-shot nearby, any one would have naturally get up and, having decided to come downstairs and investigate," I continued, would naturally light a lamp. Quite so. He stared at me very hard. Yet, he said, unless Mr. Cullen Camber can produce an alibi, I foresee a very stormy time for him. So do I, Harley. A deadly hatred existed between these two men, and probably this horrible deed was done on the spur of the moment. It is of his poor little girl-wife that I am thinking, as though her troubles were not heavy enough already." Yes, he agreed. I am almost tempted to hold my tongue, Knox, until I have personally interviewed these people. But of course, if our blundering friend directly questions me, I shall have no alternative. I shall have to answer him. His talent for examination, however, scarcely amounts to genius so that we may not be called upon for further details at the moment. I wonder how I can induce him to requisition Scotland Yard." He rested his chin in his hand and stared down reflectively at the carpet. I thought that he looked very haggard, as he sat there in the early morning light, dressed for dinner. There was something pathetic in the pose of his bowed head. Leaning across, I placed my hand on his shoulder. "'Don't get despondent, old chap,' I said. You have not failed yet." "'Oh, but I have, Knox!' he cried fiercely. "'I have. He came to me for protection. Now he lies dead in his own house. Failed? I have failed utterly, miserably.'" I turned aside as the door opened and Dr. Rolston came in. "'Ah, gentlemen,' he said, "'I wanted to see you before leaving. I have just been to visit Madame de Stemmer again.' "'Yes,' said Harley, eagerly. "'How is she?' Dr. Rolston lighted a cigarette, frowning perplexedly the while. "'To be honest,' he replied, "'her condition puzzles me.' He walked across to the fireplace and dropped the match, staring at Harley with a curious expression. "'Has anyone told her the truth?' he asked. "'You mean that Colonel Menendez is dead?' "'Yes,' replied Dr. Rolston. I understand that no one had told her." "'No one has done so to my knowledge,' said Harley." "'Then the sympathy between them must have been very acute,' murmured the physician. "'For she certainly knows.' "'Do you really think she knows?' I asked. "'I am certain of it. She must have had knowledge of a danger to be apprehended, and being awakened by the sound of the rifle-shot have realized by a sort of intuition that the expected tragedy had happened. I should say, from the presence of a small bruise which I found upon her forehead, that she had actually walked out into the corridor. "'Walked?' I cried. "'Yes,' said the physician. She is a shell-shock case, of course, and we sometimes find that a second shock counteracts the effect of the first. This temporarily, at any rate, seems to have happened to-night. She is now in a very curious state.' a form of hysteria no doubt but very curious all the same miss beverley is with her i asked dr Rolston nodded affirmatively yes a very capable nurse i'm glad to know that madame de stemmer is in such good hands I am calling again early in the morning, and I have told Mrs. Fisher to see that nothing is said within hearing of the room, which could enable Madame de Stemmer to obtain confirmation of the idea, which she evidently entertains, that Colonel Menendez is dead." "'Does she actually assert that he is dead?' asked Harley. "'My dear sir,' replied Dr. Rolston, "'she asserts nothing. She sits there like niobe changed to stone, staring straight before her. She seems to be unaware of the presence of everyone, except Miss Beverly. The only words she has spoken since recovering consciousness have been, "'Don't leave me!' "Hm," muttered Harley. "'You have not attended Madame de Stemmer before, doctor?' "'No,' was the reply. "'This is the first time I have entered Cray's Folly since it was occupied by Sir James Appleton.' He was about to take his departure when the door opened and Inspector Aylesbury walked in. Ah!" said he, I have two more witnesses to interview—Madame de Stemmer and Miss Beverley. From these witnesses I hope to get particulars of the dead man's life which may throw some light upon the identity of his murderer. It is impossible to see either of them at present, replied Dr. Rolston, briskly. What is that? asked the inspector. Are they hysterical or something? As a result of this shock, Madame de Stemmer is dangerously ill replied the physician, and Miss Beverley is remaining with her. Oh, I see. But Miss Beverley could come out for a few minutes." She could, admitted the physician sharply, but I don't wish her to do so. Oh, but the law must be served, doctor. Quite so, but not at the expense of my patient's reason. He was a resolute man, this country practitioner, and I saw Harley smiling in grim approval. I have expressed my opinion," he said, finally, walking out of the room. I shall leave the responsibility to you, Inspector Aylesbury. Good morning, gentlemen." Inspector Aylesbury scratched his chin. "'That's awkward,' he muttered. "'The evidence of this woman is highly important.' He turned toward us, doubtingly, whereupon Harley stood up, yawning. "'If I can be of any further assistance to you, Inspector,' said my friend, command me, Otherwise, I feel sure you will appreciate the fact that both Mr. Knox and myself are extremely tired, and have passed through a very trying ordeal." "'Yes,' replied Inspector Aylesbury. "'That's all very well, but I find myself at a deadlock.' "'You surprise me,' declared Harley. "'I can see nothing to be surprised about,' cried the inspector. "'When I was called in, it was already too late.' "'Most unfortunate murmured Harley, disagreeably. "'Come along, Knox. You look tired to death.' "'One moment, gentlemen,' the inspector insisted as I stood up. "'One moment. There is a little point which you may be able to clear up.' Harley paused, his hand on the doorknob, and turned. "'The point is this,' continued the inspector, frowning portentously and lowering his chin so that it almost disappeared into the folds of his neck. I have now interviewed all the inmates of Cray's Folly except the ladies. It appears to me that four people had not gone to bed. There are you two gentlemen, who've explained why I found you in evening dress, Colonel Menendez, who can never explain, and there is one other." He paused, looking from Harley to myself. It had come, the question which I had dreaded the question which I had been asking myself ever since I had seen Val Beverly kneeling in the corridor, dressed as she had been when we had parted for the night. "'I refer to Miss Val Beverly,' the police-court voice proceeded. "'This lady had evidently not retired, and neither, it would appear, had the Colonel.' "'Neither had I,' murmured Harley, "'and neither had Mr. Knox.' "'Your reason, I understand.' said the inspector, or at least your explanation is a possible one. But if the party broke up, as you say it did, somewhere about half-past ten o'clock, and if Madame de Stemmer had gone to bed, why should Miss Beverley have remained up? He paused significantly. "'As well as Colonel Menendez,' he added. "'Look here, Inspector Aylesbury,' I interrupted, I speaking in a very quiet tone, I remember. Your insinuations annoy me." "'Oh,' said he, turning his prominent eyes in my direction, "'I see. They annoy you. If they annoy you, sir, perhaps you can explain this point which is puzzling me.' "'I cannot explain it, but doubtless Miss Beverley can do so when you ask her. I should like to have asked her now, and I can't make out why she refuses to see me.' "'She has not refused to see you replied Harley, smoothly. She is probably unaware of the fact that you wish to see her. "'I don't know so much,' muttered the inspector. "'In my opinion, I am being deliberately baffled on all sides. You can throw no light on this matter, then?' "'None,' I answered shortly, and Paul Harley shook his head. "'But you must remember, inspector,' he explained, "'that the entire household was in a state of unrest. In other words, Everybody was waiting for this very thing to happen. Consciously or subconsciously, everybody was. What do you mean by consciously or subconsciously? I mean that those of us who were aware of the previous attempts on the life of the colonel apprehended this danger, and I believe that something of this apprehension had extended even to the servants. Oh, to the servants! Now I have seen all the servants except the chef, who lives at a house on the outskirts of Manhattan, as you may know. Can you give me any information about this man?" "'I have seen him,' replied Harley, "'and have congratulated him upon his culinary art. His name, I believe, is de He is a Spaniard and a little fat man. Quite an amiable creature,' he added. h hm. The inspector cleared his throat noisily. "'If that is all,' said Harley, I should welcome an opportunity of a few hours' sleep." "'Oh,' said the inspector, "'well, I suppose that is quite natural, but I shall probably have a lot more questions to ask you later.'" "'Quite,' muttered Harley, "'quite. Come on, Knox. Good night, Inspector Aylesbury.'" "'Good night.'" Harley walked out of the dining-room and across the deserted hall. He slowly mounted the stairs, and I followed him into his room. It was now quite light, and as my friend dropped down upon the bed, I thought that he looked very tired and haggard. "'Knox,' he said. Shut the door." I closed the door and turned to him. "'You heard that question about Miss Beverley,' I began. "'I heard it, and I am wondering what her answer will be when the inspector puts it to her personally.' "'Surely it is obvious,' I cried. A cloud of apprehension had settled on the house last night, Harley, which was like the darkness of Egypt. That poor girl was afraid to go to bed. She was probably sitting up reading." "'Hm,' said Harley, drumming his feet upon the carpet. Of course you realize that there is one person in Cray's folly who holds the clue to the heart of the mystery." "'Madame de Stemmer?' He nodded grimly. When the rifle cracked out, Knox, she knew. Remember, no one had told her the truth. Yet can you doubt that she knows?" -"I don't doubt it." -"Neither do I." He clenched his teeth tightly and beat his fists upon the coverlet. -"I was dreading that our friend the Inspector would ask a question which to my mind was very obvious." -"You mean--" -"Well, what investigator whose skull contained anything more useful than bubbles would have failed to ask if Colonel Menendez had an enemy in the neighborhood. No one, I admitted, but I fear the poor man is sadly out of his depth. He is waiting hopelessly, Knox, but even he cannot fail to learn about Camber tomorrow. He stared at me in a curiously significant manner. Do you mean, Harley, I began, that you really think— My dear Knox, he interrupted, forgetting, if you like, all that preceded the tragedy, with what facts are we left? That Colonel Menendez, at the moment when the bullet entered his brain, must have been standing facing directly toward the guest-house. Now you have seen the direction of the wound?" He was shot squarely between the eyes. A piece of wonderful marksmanship. Quite, Harley nodded his head. But the bullet came out just at the vertex of the spine. He paused, as if waiting for some comment. And—' "'You mean that the shot came from above?' I said slowly. "'Obviously, it came from above, Knox. Keep these two points in your mind, and then consider that the fact that someone lighted a lamp in the guesthouse only a few moments after the shot had been fired.' "'I remember. I saw it.' "'So did I,' said Harley grimly. "'And I saw something else. "'What was that?' When you went off to summon assistance, I ran across the lawn, scrambled through the bushes, and succeeded in climbing down into the little gully in which the stream runs, and up on the other side. I had proceeded practically in a straight line from the sundial, And do you know where I found myself?" "'I can guess,' I replied. "'Of course you can. You have visited the place. I came out immediately beside a little hut, Knox, which stands at the end of the garden of the guest-house. Ahead of me, visible through a tangle of bushes in the neglected garden, a lamp was burning. I crept cautiously forward, and presently obtained a view of the interior of a kitchen. Just as I arrived at this point of vantage, the lamp was extinguished, but not before I had had a glimpse of the only occupant of the room, the man who had extinguished the lamp. "'Who was it?' I asked in a low voice. "'It was a Chinaman.' Song, I cried. Doubtless. "'Good heavens, Harley! Do you think—' "'I don't know what to think, Knox. A possible explanation is that the household had been aroused by the sound of the shot, and that Song had been directed to go out and see if he could learn what had happened. At any rate, I waited no longer, but returned by the same route. If our portly friend from Market Hilton had possessed the eyes of an Auguste Dupin, he could not have failed to note that my dress-boots were caked with light yellow clay, which, also, by the way, besmears my trousers." He stooped and examined the garments as he spoke. "'A number of thorns are also present,' he continued. "'In short, from the point of view of an investigation, I am a most provoking object.' He sighed wearily and stared out of the window in the direction of the Tudor garden. There was a slight chilliness in the air, which, or perhaps a sudden memory of that which lay in the billiard-room beneath us, may have accounted for the fact that I shivered violently. Harley glanced up with a rather sad smile. The morning after Waterloo, he said, Sleep well, Knox. CHAPTER Twenty. A Spanish cigarette. Sleep was not for me, despite Harley's injunction, and although I was early afoot, the big house was already astir with significant movements, which set the imagination on fire, to conjure up again the moonlight scene in the garden, making mock of the song of the birds and of the glory of the morning. Manuel replied to my ring and prepared my bath, but it was easy to see that he had not slept. No sound came from Harley's room. Therefore, I did not disturb him, but proceeded downstairs in the hope of finding Miss Beverly about. Pedro was in the hall, talking to Mrs. Fisher, and— Is Inspector Aylesbury here? I asked. No, sir, but he will be returning at about half-past eight, so he said. How is Madame de Stemmer, Mrs. Fisher? I inquired. Oh, poor, poor Madame, said the old lady. She is asleep, thank God, but I am dreading her awakening the blow is a dreadful one i admitted and miss beverley she didn't go to her room until after four o'clock sir but nita tells me that she will be down any moment now ah said i and lighting a cigarette i walked out of the open doors into the courtyard i dreaded all the ghastly official formalities which the day would bring since i realized that the brunt of the trouble must fall upon the shoulders of miss beverley in the absence of madame de stemmer I wandered about restlessly, awaiting the girl's appearance. A little two-seater was drawn up in the courtyard, but I had not paid much attention to it, until, wandering through the opening in the box-hedge and on along the gravel path, I saw unfamiliar figures moving in the billiard-room, and turned, hastily retracing my steps. Officialdom was at work already, and I knew that there would be no rest for any of us from that hour onward. As I re-entered the hall, I saw Val Beverley coming down the staircase. She looked pale, but seemed to be in better spirits than I could have hoped for, although there were dark shadows under her eyes. "'Good morning, Miss Beverley,' I said. "'Good morning, Mr. Knox. It was good of you to come down so early.' "'I had hoped for a chat with you before Inspector Aylesbury returned,' I explained. She looked at me pathetically. "'I suppose he will want me to give evidence.' "'He will.' We had great difficulty in persuading him not to demand your presence last night." "'It was impossible,' she protested. "'It would have been cruel to make me leave Madame in the circumstances. "'We realize this, Miss Beverley, but you will have to face the ordeal this morning.' We walked through into the library, where a maid white-faced and frightened-looking was dusting in a desultory fashion. She went out as we entered, and Val Beverly stood looking from the open window, out into the rose garden bathed in the morning sunlight. "'Oh, heavens!' she said, clenching her hands desperately. Even now I cannot realize that the horrible thing is true." She turned to me. "'Who can possibly have committed this cold-blooded crime?' she said in a low voice. "'What does Mr. Harley think? Has he any idea, any idea whatever?' Not that he has confided to me," I said, watching her intently. "'But tell me, does Madame de Stemmer know yet?' "'What do you mean?' "'I mean, has she been told the truth?' The girl shook her head. "'No,' she replied. "'I am positive that no one has told her. I was with her all the time, up to the very moment that she fell asleep, yet—' She hesitated. "'Yes?' "'She knows. Oh, Mr. Knox! To me that is the most horrible thing of all, that she knows, that she must have known all along, that the mere sound of the shot told her everything." You realize now, I said quietly, that she had anticipated the end? Yes, yes. This was the meaning of the sorrow which I had seen so often in her eyes, the meaning of so much that puzzled me in her words, the explanation of lots of little things which have made me wonder in the past. I was silent for a while, then, if she was so certain that no one could save him, I said, she must have had information which neither he nor she ever imparted to us. I am sure she had, declared Val Beverley. But can you think of any reason why she should not have confided in Paul Harley? I cannot, I cannot, unless, yes? Unless, Mr. Knox. She looked at me strangely. They were both under some vow of silence. Oh, it sounds ridiculous, wildly ridiculous, but what other explanation can there be? What other, indeed? And now, Miss Beverley, I know one of the questions Inspector Aylesbury will ask you. What is it? He has learned from one of the servants, I presume, as he did not see you, that you had not retired last night at the time of the tragedy. I had not," said Val Beverley quietly, "'is that so singular?' To me it is no more than natural." I have never been so frightened in all my life as I was last night. Sleep was utterly out of the question. There was mystery in the very air. I knew, oh, Mr. Knox, in some way I knew that a tragedy was going to happen. "'I believe I knew, too,' I said. Good God, to think that we might have saved him. "'Do you think—' began Val Beverly, and then paused. "'Yes,' I prompted. "'Oh, I was going to say a strange thing that suddenly occurred to me, but it is utterly foolish, I suppose. "'Inspector Aylesbury is coming back at nine o'clock, is he not?' "'At half-past eight, so I understand.' "'I am afraid I have very little to tell him. I was sitting in my room in an appalling state of nerves when the shot was fired. I was not even reading. I was just waiting waiting for something to happen. I understand. My own experience was nearly identical. Then, continued the girl, as I unlocked my door and peeped out, feeling too frightened to venture farther in the darkness, I heard Madame's voice in the hall below. Crying for help? No, replied the girl, a puzzled frown appearing between her brows. She cried out something in French. The intonation told me that it was French, although I could not detect a single word. Then I thought I heard a moan. And you ran down? Yes. I summoned up enough courage to turn on the light in the corridor and to run down the hall, and there she was, lying just outside the door of her room. Was her room in darkness? Yes. I turned on the light and succeeded in partly raising her, but she was too heavy for me to lift. I was still trying to revive her when Pedro opened the door of the servants' quarters. Oh," she closed her eyes wearily, I shall never forget it. I took her hand and pressed it reassuringly. Your courage has been wonderful throughout, I declared, and I hope it will remain so to the end. She smiled and flushed slightly as I released her hand again. I must go and take a peep at Madame now, she said, but of course I shall not disturb her if she is still sleeping. We turned and walked slowly back to the hall, and there, just entering from the courtyard, was Inspector Aylesbury. "'Ah!' he exclaimed. "'Good morning, Mr. Knox! This is Miss Beverley, I presume?' "'Yes, Inspector,' replied the girl. "'I understand that you wish to speak to me?' "'I do, miss, but I shall not detain you for many minutes.' "'Very well,' she said, and as she turned and retraced her steps, he followed her back into the library. I walked out to the courtyard, and, avoiding the Tudor garden and the billiard-room, turned in the other direction, passing the stables where Jim, the negro groom, saluted me very sadly, and proceeded round to the south side of the house. Inspector Aylesbury, I perceived, had wasted no time. I counted no fewer than four men, two of them in uniform, searching the lawns and the slopes beyond, although what they were looking for I could not imagine. Giving the library a wide berth, I walked along the second terrace, and presently came in sight of the east wing and the tower. There, apparently engaged in studying the rhododendrons, I saw Paul Harley. He signaled to me, and crossing the lawn, I joined him where he stood. Without any word of greeting— "'You see, Knox,' he said, speaking in the eager manner which betokened a rapidly working brain, "'this is the path which the Colonel must have followed last night.' Yonder is the door by which, according to his own account, he came out on a previous occasion, walking in his sleep. Do you remember?" "'I remember,' I replied. "'Well, Pedro found it unlocked this morning. You see, it faces practically due south, and the Colonel's bedroom is immediately above us where we stand.' He stared at me queerly. "'I must have passed this door last night only a few moments before the Colonel came out. For I was just crossing the courtyard and could see you at my window at the moment when you saw poor Menendez enter the Tudor garden. He must have actually been walking around the east wing at the same time that I was walking around the west. Now I'm going to show you something, Knox, something which I have just discovered." From his waistcoat pocket he took out a half-smoked cigarette. I stared at it uncomprehendingly. "'Of course,' he continued. The weather has been bone-dry for more than a week now, and it may have lain there for a long time, but to me, Knox, it to me, it looks suspiciously fresh." "'What is the point?' I asked, perplexedly. "'The point is that it is a handmade cigarette, one of the Colonel's. Don't you recognize it?' "'Good heavens!' I said. "'Yes, of course it is.' He returned it to his pocket without another word. "'It may mean nothing,' he murmured or it may mean everything. And now, Knox, we are going to escape." "'To escape?' I cried. "'Precisely. We are going to anticipate the probable movements of our blundering Aylesbury. In short, I wish you to present me to Mr. Cullen Camber.' "'What?' I exclaimed, staring at him incredulously. "'I am going to ask you,' he began, and then breaking off. "'Quick, Knox, run,' he said. And thereupon, to my amazement, he set off through the rhododendron bushes in the direction of the tower. Utterly unable to grasp the meaning of his behavior, I followed nevertheless, and as we rounded the corner of the tower, Harley pulled up short, and— I am not mad, he explained rather breathlessly, but I wanted to avoid being seen by that constable who was prowling about at the bottom of the lawn making signals in the direction of the library. Presumably, he was replying to Inspector Aylesbury, who wants to talk to us. I am determined to interview Camber before submitting to further official interrogation. It must be a cross country journey, Knox. I am afraid we shall be a very muddy pair, but great issues may hang upon the success of our expedition. He set off briskly toward a belt of shrubbery which marked the edge of the little stream. Appreciating something of his intentions, I followed his lead unquestioningly and scrambled through the bushes. This was the point at which I descended last night, he said. You'll have to wade, Knox, but the water is hardly above one's ankles." He dropped into the brook, waded across, and began to climb up the opposite bank. I imitated his movements, and presently, having scrambled up on the farther side, we found ourselves standing on a narrow bank immediately under that summer house which Cullen Camber had told me he had formerly used as a study. "'We can scarcely present ourselves at the kitchen door,' murmured Harley. "'Therefore, we must try to find a way round to the front there is barbed wire here, be careful." I had now entered with zest into the business, and so the pair of us waded through rank grass which in places was waist-high, and on through a perfect wilderness of weeds in which nettles dominated. Presently we came to a dry ditch, which we negotiated successfully, to find ourselves upon the high road some hundred yards to the west of the guest-house. I predict an unfriendly reception, I said, panting from my exertions, and surveying my friend who was a mockery of his ordinarily spruce self. "'We must face it,' he replied grimly. "'He has everything to gain by being civil to us.' We proceeded along the dusty high road, almost overarched by trees. "'Harley,' I said, "'this is going to be a highly unpleasant ordeal for me.' Harley stopped short, staring at me sternly. "'I know, Knox,' he replied. But I suppose you realize that a man's life is at stake. You mean—' I mean that when we are both compelled to tell all we know, I doubt if there's a council in the land who would undertake the defense of Mr. Cullen Camber. Good God! Then you think he is guilty! Did I say so? asked Harley, continuing on his way. I don't recollect saying so, Knox, but I do say that it will be a giant's task to prove him innocent. Then you believe him to be innocent, I cried eagerly. My dear fellow, he replied, somewhat irritably, I have not yet met Mr. Cullen Camber. I will answer your question at the conclusion of the interview. Chapter 21 The Wing of a Bat. For a long time, our knocking and ringing elicited no response. The brilliant state of the door brass afforded evidence of the fact that Odd Song had risen even if the other members of the household were still sleeping, and Harley, growing irritable, executed a loud tattoo upon the knocker. This had its effect. The door was opened and A Tsong looked out. "'Tell your master that Mr. Paul Harley has called to see him upon urgent business.' "'Master Nogat,' replied Ah Tsong, and proceeded to close the door. Paul Harley thrust his hand against it and addressed the man rapidly in Chinese. I could not have supposed the face of Odd Song capable of expressing so much animation. At the sound of his native tongue, his eyes lighted up, and—'Chi! chi!' chi," he said, turning and disappeared. Although he had studiously avoided looking at me, that Odd Song would inform his master of the identity of his second visitor, I did not doubt. If I had doubted, I should promptly have been disillusioned, for—'Tell them to go away!' came a muffled cry from somewhere within. No spy of the devil Menendez shall ever pass my doors again. The Chinaman, on retiring, had left the door wide open, and I could see right to the end of the gloomy hall. Ah Tsong presently reappeared, shuffling along in our direction. Unemotionally, Master Nogat, he repeated. Paul Harley stamped his foot irritably. Good God, Knox, he said, this unreasonable fool almost exhausts my patience. Again he addressed Ah Tsong in Chinese, although the man's wrinkled ivory face exhibited no trace of emotion. A deep understanding was to be read in those oblique eyes, and a second time Ah Tsong turned and trotted back to the study. I could hear a muttered colloquy in progress, and suddenly the gaunt figure of Cullen Camber burst into view. He was shaved this morning, but arrayed as I had last seen him. Whilst he was not in that state of incoherent anger which I remembered, and still resented, he was nevertheless in an evil temper. He strode along the hallway, his large eyes widely opened, and fixing a cold stare upon the face of Harley. "'I learn that your name is Mr. Paul Harley,' he said, entirely ignoring my presence. "'And you send me a very strange message. I am used to the ways of Signor Menendez, therefore your message does not deceive me. The gateway, sir, is directly behind you.' Harley clenched his teeth, then— "'The scaffold, Mr. Camber,' he replied, "'is directly in front of you.' "'What do you mean, sir?' demanded the other, and despite my resentment of the treatment which I had received at his hands, I could only admire the lofty disdain of his manner. "'I mean, Mr. Camber, that the police are close upon my heels. The police? Of what interest can this be to me?' Harley's keen eyes were searching the pale face of the man before him. "'Mr. Camber,' he said. "'The shot was a good one.' Not a muscle of Cullen Camber's face moved, but slowly he looked Paul Harley up and down. Then— "'I have been called a hasty man,' he replied coldly, "'but I can scarcely be accused of leaping to a conclusion when I say that I believe you to be mad. "'You have interrupted me, sir. Good morning.' He stepped back and would have closed the door, but, Mr. Camber, said Paul Harley, and the tone of his voice was arresting. Cullen Camber paused. My name is evidently unfamiliar to you, Harley continued. You regard myself and Mr. Knox as friends of the late Colonel Menendez. At that, Cullen Camber started forward. The late Colonel Menendez? he echoed, speaking almost in a whisper. But as if he had not heard him, Harley continued. As a matter of fact, I am a criminal investigator, and Mr. Knox is assisting me in my present case." Colin Camber clenched his hands, and seemed to be fighting with some emotion which possessed him. Then— "'Do you mean,' he said hoarsely, "'do you mean that Menendez is dead?' "'I do,' replied Harley. "'May I request the privilege of ten minutes' private conversation with you?' Colin Camber stood aside, holding the door open, and inclining his head in that grave salutation which I knew, but on this occasion I think principally with intent to hide his emotion. Not another word did he speak until the three of us stood in the strange study where East grimaced at West, and emblems of remote devil-worship jostled the cross of the Holy Rose. The place was laden with tobacco-smoke, and, scattered on the carpet about the feet of the writing-table, lay twenty or more pages of closely written manuscript. Although this was a brilliant summer's morning, an old-fashioned reading-lamp, called, I believe, a Victoria, having a nickel receptacle for oil at one side of the standard and a burner with a green glass shade on the other, still shed its light upon the desk. It was only reasonable to suppose that Cullen Camber had been at work all night. He paused for a moment. I had been retained professionally by Colonel Menendez," replied Harley, without hesitation, and Mr. Knox kindly consented to accompany me. Cullen Camber looked very hard at the speaker, and then equally hard at me. "'Was it at behest of Colonel Menendez that you called upon me, Mr. Knox?' "'It was not,' said Harley tersely. It was at mine. And he is here now at my request. "'Come, sir, we are wasting time.' At any moment—Colin Camber held up his hand, interrupting him. "'By your leave, Mr. Harley,' he said, and there was something compelling in voice and gesture. "'I must first perform my duty as a gentleman.' He stepped forward in my direction. "'Mr. Knox, I have grossly insulted you. Yet if you knew what had inspired my behavior, I believe you could find it in your heart to forgive me.' I do not ask you to do so, however, I accept the humiliation of knowing that I have mortally offended a guest." He bowed to me formally, and would have returned to his seat, but— Pray say no more, I said, standing up and extending my hand. Indeed so impressive was the man's strange personality that I felt rather as one receiving a royal pardon than as an offended party being offered an apology. It was a misunderstanding. Let us forget it." His eyes gleamed, and he seized my hand in a warm grip. "'You are generous, Mr. Knox, you are generous. And now, sir—' he inclined his head in Paul Harley's direction and resumed his seat. Harley had suffered this odd little interlude in silence, but now—' "'Mr. Camber,' he said rapidly, "'I sent you a message by your Chinese servant to the effect that the police would be here within ten minutes to arrest you.' "'You did, sir replied Cullen Camber, drawing toward him a piece of newspaper, upon which rested a dwindling mound of shag. This is most disturbing, of course. But since I have not rendered myself amenable to the law, it leaves me moderately unmoved. Upon your second point, Mr. Harley, I shall beg you to enlarge. You tell me that Don Juan Menendez is dead?" He had begun to fill his corn-cob pipe as he spoke the words but from where I sat I could see just his face, so that although his voice was well controlled, the gleam in his eyes was unmistakable. He was shot through the head shortly after midnight. What? Cullen Camber dropped the corncob pipe and stood up again, the light of a dawning comprehension in his eyes. Do you mean that he was murdered? I do. Good God! whispered Camber. At last I understand. That is why we are here, Mr. Camber, and that is why the police will be here at any moment." Cullen Camber stood erect, one hand resting upon the desk. So, this was the meaning of the shot which we heard in the night, he said slowly. Crossing the room, he closed and locked the study door, then returning, he sat down once more, entirely master of himself. Frowning slightly, he looked from Harley in my direction, and then back again at Harley. "'Gentlemen,' he resumed, "'I appreciate the urgency of my danger. Preposterous though I know it to be, nevertheless it is perhaps no more than natural that suspicion should fall upon me.' He was evidently thinking rapidly. His manner had grown quite cool, and I could see that he had focused his keen brain upon the abyss which he perceived to lie in his path. Before I commit myself to any statements which might be used as evidence, he said, Doubtless, Mr. Harley, you will inform me of your exact standpoint in this matter. Do you represent the late Colonel Menendez, do you represent the law, or may I regard you as a perfectly impartial inquirer?" You may regard me, Mr. Camber, as one to whom nothing but the truth is of the slightest interest. I was requested by the late Colonel Menendez to visit Cray's folly. Professionally? To endeavor to trace the origin of certain occurrences which had led him to believe his life to be in danger. Harley paused, staring hard at Colin Camber. "'Since I recognize myself to be standing in the position of a suspect,' said the latter, "'it is perhaps unfair to request you to acquaint me with the nature of these occurrences?' "'The one, sir,' replied Paul Harley, "'which most intimately concerns yourself is this. Almost exactly a month ago, the wing of a bat was nailed to the door of Cray's folly. "'What?' exclaimed Cullen Camber, leaning forward eagerly. "'The wing of a bat? What kind of a bat?' "'Of a South American vampire bat.' The effect of those words was curious. If any doubt respecting Camber's innocence had remained with me at this time, I think his expression as he leaned forward across the desk must certainly have removed it. That the man was intellectually unusual, and intensely difficult to understand, must have been apparent to the most superficial observer. But I found it hard to believe that these moods of his were simulated. At the words, A South American Vampire Bat, the enthusiasm of the specialist leapt into his eyes. Personal danger was forgotten. Harley had trenched upon his particular territory, and I knew that if Cullen Camber had actually killed Colonel Menendez. Then, it had been the act of a maniac. No man newly come from so bloody a deed could have acted as Camber acted now. "'It is the death sign of voodoo!' he exclaimed excitedly. Yet again he arose, and crossing to one of the many cabinets which were in the room, he pulled open a drawer and took out a shallow tray. My friend was watching him intently. And from the expression upon his bronzed face, I could deduce the fact that in Cullen Camber he had met the supreme puzzle of his career. As Camber stood there, holding up an object which he had taken from the tray, whilst Paul Harley sat staring at him, I thought the scene was one transcending the grotesque. Here was the suspected man triumphantly producing evidence to hang himself. Between his finger and thumb, Camber held the wing of a bat. End of chapter twenty one.